Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. Christine is away this week. In today's episode, we'll discuss the federal government's cybersecurity bill, which has some worrying implications for constitutional rights. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that did not quite land. But first, I'm going to tell you about how Prime Minister Trudeau signed away control of a huge swath of Canadian territory this week, and nobody noticed, and how BC may be about to do the same. Joanna, there's a tweet going around this week from a certain PhD student from McMaster University. You probably know who I'm talking about, and it's been getting a lot of attention. So basically, she berates fellow pro-Palestinian protesters for bringing Canadian flags to their anti-Israel marches. And that's not something you actually see all that much. But anyway, her point was... You do see it a lot at uh, the pro-Israel marches, on the other hand, Canadian flags. But that's an aside. Yeah, no, that's a, but it's a telling aside. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, her point was that Palestinians should never hold up the Maple Leaf flag because, you know, it's the flag of an evil country that's overseeing, quote, a continuing genocide against Indigenous peoples. And by that, she means, you know, Canada and the taxpayers who fund her PhD are basically no different than the great Satan Israel. And to me, I bring this up just because it's emblematic of the sort of real mental gymnastics you have to do to believe that Canada is, you know, committing genocide against Indigenous people in 2024, considering that for decades now, Canada has been pouring a lot of time and money into trying to build capacity for Indigenous people to self-govern and to have a bigger say in how Crown lands get used. And I actually don't think we talk enough about some of the successes here, like we have in For example, in Northern Quebec with the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, in Northern BC with the NISGA Agreement, where local First Nations have a lot of powers and a lot of self-government already. And this week, there was another big step. I think it's a big step. I think it's probably a good thing. And that's uh, this agreement that Justin Trudeau signed on behalf of the Crown uh, with Nunavut called the Nunavut Lands and Resources Devolution Agreement. This agreement transfers administration and control of all undeveloped Nunavut lands and natural resources to the Inuit. And this includes control and approval over royalties for onshore oil and gas projects. And it says Nunavut can keep at least $9 million a year in natural resources revenues before its uh, transfer payment from the rest of Canada gets reduced. It will eventually transfer all of the federal taxpayer-owned office buildings and public housing and other infrastructure to the territorial government. And in some senses, it is really a big deal. You know, Justin Trudeau's press release calls it, quote, the biggest land transfer in Canadian history involving 20% of the land in Canada. And according to Nunavut's premier, it gives the final pen on resource projects to Iqaluit rather than Ottawa. But at the same time, it's not clear all that much will actually change. And that's because the Nunavumiat are already basically in control of the land and resource development decisions that happen there anyway. And that's because they already select a majority of the members on the boards that review the projects and they'll continue to do so under the new agreement. 
And these kinds of projects already weren't going ahead without approval of the Inuit. And that's really not surprising considering they make up 85% of the population. And so you really can't, you know, just come in from the South and say, we're going to build these things uh, or take these things without a huge portion of the Inuit being in favor of that. You know, for example, back in November, the Nunavut Impact Review Board um, surprised a lot of people when they rejected a plan to extend the life of a gold mine and also to build a wind farm that would have created new jobs. And this was ostensibly over concerns by hunters and trappers, including people concerned about impact on the caribou. And, you know, we can't say for sure that's what it was really about. But in that case, Ottawa retained the final pen, but there never really was any question that they would overrule the Inuit majority board in, in that case. And another thing worth noting is that, you know, this transfer of administration and control is just that it's administration and control and that can be taken back the agreement you know explicitly says these lands continue to belong to his majesty the king and right of canada also just to put these royalties in perspective it's actually kind of a drop in the bucket there are a couple of different formulas that nunavut can choose from depending on their finances at the time but one says that canada will start clawing back transfer payments when royalties hit $9 million a year. And to put that in perspective, Canada is currently transferring $2 billion a year directly to Nunavut, which is $50,000 uh, per person in taxpayer funding flowing into the territory each year. So if they end up getting a bit more royalties, it won't, won't make that much of a difference to Canadian taxpayers. But if they start generating significantly more than that $9 million, all that's going to do is make none of it more self-sufficient. And that seems to be like a win-win. Um, another important part of the agreement is that it says Canada can take back administration and control of lands and waters where it's necessary to do so for national security. And honestly, this is hugely important because Canada's interest in, in none of it is not so much, you know, building new settlements or that type of thing, but acting as sort of a buffer against Russia and China, which uh, which we only really have if the Inuit feel like they're part of Canada. And not to mention there's uh, the possibility of a lot more shipping going through the Northwest Passage if the Arctic continues to warm up. And again, you would need local support uh, if ships are going to go through that route anyway. So another part of this is that it doesn't include offshore oil and gas. Uh, basically, the agreement says none of it will be treated the same as a province in terms of royalties for offshore oil and gas. So that seems to suggest Canada would be able to recoup some of the revenue for the good of the whole country when it comes to to offshore. And so, you know, a lot of people on Twitter have been saying this is a, a huge giveaway of Canadian land or Canadian sovereignty, but I'm not all that concerned after actually reading the agreement. And uh, that's, that's not to say I don't have concerns about Canadian sovereignty, though, and that's because of what's going on in British Columbia. And I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but most of BC's lands were never ceded under treaty to the Crown by Indigenous people, unlike here in Ontario or all of the prairies. And, you know, the Supreme Court has decided that Indigenous people were never conquered and that means there's uh, a little bit shakier ground for the Crown's claim to title over, you know, parts of BC, for example. And 
BC's new Democrat government decided in 2019 the way forward through this um, legal quagmire was by saying they're going to honor UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that um, that that international agreement uh, says that states shall conduct and cooperate in good faith with the Indigenous peoples concerned in order to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories and other resources. And as University of Saskatchewan law professor Dwight Newman has pointed out, what this means in international law is that the government you know, needs to make a meaningful good faith effort to obtain consent. Um, this sort of runs contrary to this the, the layman understanding of free prior and informed consent, which is that it gives Indigenous people a veto over development on their traditional territories. But according to this blog post by lawyers at Macmillan in Vancouver, the BC government seems to be planning to make changes to the Lands Act sometime in April or early May that would go beyond what UNDRIP actually requires and enable the BC government to sign agreements with Indigenous groups that would give them a veto over decision-making about Crown land tenures. And in other words, uh, if Macmillan is, is right here, then these agreements would give the final pen to Indigenous groups. And to me, that's a really big problem because BC isn't like Iqaluit where, you know, 85% of the people are Indigenous, it's 95% non-Indigenous. So it would seem kind of undemocratic and concerning if a, a small minority were able to overrule the vast majority of British Columbians who want to see, you know, resource development projects go ahead. And uh, it's also a big concern for, you know, ranchers who have grazing leases or people that own, you know, tourism lodges and need approval for their docks or boathouses. They might now uh, see Indigenous people have a veto over that. And so, you know, these are sort of rumors. We don't really know for sure if this is what BC is going to do because they've been pretty cagey about it. But uh, if they go ahead with this this plan to give Indigenous groups an actual veto, I think that's going to potentially be explosive and have major impacts for, for the economy. And, uh, you know, I don't see why we can't just honor the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate Aboriginal rights and title like we currently do. So, uh, yeah, Joanna, I know that's a lot of uh, sort of history and information. I hope it's interesting. A few people actually asked me about this agreement, which is why I thought, even though it sounds kind of boring, we should maybe get into it. Um, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's a big deal. And the question is always, at what point are we creating sort of like sub principalities and violating the principle of sovereignty. Because when you read, I became obsessed with this in law school when I started studying the Supreme Court's indigenous rights jurisprudence, that it's like a hundred pages of flowery language about, you know, the about honoring, you know, the, the history of indigenous of First Nations and indigenous peoples uh, in Canada. But they're always the last line is, but all of this has to come down to the sovereignty of Her Majesty the Queen, or I guess now it would be His Majesty the King, that like, ultimately, there, there's no question that, you know, that the Canadian crown is is supreme. Um, and there was a decision, now it's probably closer to 10 years ago, 
um, Kutanaxa Nation, which was a case where um, an indigenous group was preventing the development of a mountain as a ski resort. And um, the reason was that, and there was sort of, there was disagreement within within the, the nation itself, um, but one part of the nation was claiming that the spirit of the great bear inhabited the mountain. And because of the spirit of the great bear, absolutely no development could go forward. You know, the record was super mixed and the Supreme Court ended up saying like, no, your your sort of right to freedom of religion or any other principle doesn't give you a veto power. Um, and then it raises a second issue, um, which uh, actually the first case CCF ever worked on, the Niska Treaty, raised this point of what does it mean? And to some extent, um, another case that see, that we're waiting on an outcome from from the Supreme Court, Dixon v. Uh, versus Vuntat Gwich'in First Nation, raises the question of. What's the impact on Indigenous peoples um, if you create these situations of opting out of Canada's constitutional order, if that's possible, which is an interesting conceptual question. Um, but then that deprives um, the Indigenous persons themselves of the benefit of the charter. Um, and Dixon is a really interesting case, which we should have a decision from the SCC soon, and I'm sure we'll have lots to say about it, but it raises a question of what happens when an Indigenous person, in this case, um, a, a woman who was told that she could no longer serve on a band council because she had to move off the reservation to be close to a hospital for her child, um, and she was told that she could no longer serve on band council, does she have any charter rights against her own community? And the community claimed no. Um, and so I think many Indigenous persons will have something to say about that. Um, and, and broadly, we, you know, we, we want every person who lives in Canada, however they understand their affiliation or their belonging to enjoy the same rights of, you know, of equality and rights against non-discrimination and rights of liberty as any other person who, who lives here. So the more that we have these opt-out situations, the more that the liberties of, of Indigenous peoples themselves get threatened. So Sorry, I really like popped out to a high level there. Um, but this stuff is is so interesting. Um, but I didn't know this about the BC NDP. That's a little wild. Yeah, it's it's all it's all interesting stuff. It's really hard to uh figure out what the law is if you have different rules for different people, right? So that's uh one of the big uh interesting parts of our constitution is that it does create special rights, you know, the Section 35 creates special rights for Indigenous people, and there are also parts that create special rights for linguistic minorities uh, who are either Anglophone or Francophone, depending on the province. And uh, that's uh, it's sort of an uncomfortable fit with the idea of rights, which are supposed to be universal, um, well, right, apply, but, but, apply but equally at, to everyone. At least we should say if you have, you know, special rights, you know, because of customary treaty agreements or stuff like that, that doesn't mean that your Section 15 right to equality goes out the window. So our point in the Dixon case was you have all of indigenous people have all of their customary rights and they also have recourse to charter rights. Um, but the opposing side was making a different argument, which we'll, we'll see what the Supreme say about that. So should we move on to cybersecurity? Yeah, another super sexy topic. Yeah. Well, depending on who you ask. It is interesting though. Yeah. Um, so 
wanted to talk for a, a minute or a couple of minutes about Bill C-26, which is this new cybersecurity bill, which is being um, considered and uh, studied by a committee of the House of Commons this week. I'm actually going to be testifying about it tomorrow morning. Um, so I thought I'd share a bit about it and some of the concerns that uh, we have as uh, uh, people who care about fundamental freedoms. So this bill is proposing amendments to the Telecommunication Acts um, and other laws to strengthen cybersecurity um, and will affect all internet devices that we rely on daily. Um, so for example, if you had a device hacked like your smart refrigerator or your laptop and it was used to attack a government website, um, under this bill, your internet uh, service could be revoked under, under it and you'd have no idea why and no way to meaningfully challenge it. Uh, and this bill, which has been uh, proposed and has been considered for about a year now, um, was greeted with a fair bit of shock from civil liberties groups such as ourselves. Uh, to give a comparator, the UK and Australia also both recently revamped their cybersecurity legislation. Um, but both bills in Australia, it's called the Security of Critical Infrastructure. And in the UK, it's the Network and Information Security Bills incorporate way more explicit uh, privacy, accountability and proportionality measures than the Canadian version has. Uh, so I'll lay out a few of the of the big issues that I see in the bill. So first, the bill opens the door to a whole new slate of surveillance obligation. It explicitly allows the government to secretly order telecom providers like Roger, Rogers or TELUS to, quote unquote, do anything or refrain from doing anything. Um, so obviously, it's imposing possible surveillance obligations on private companies in this context, um, as well as possible weakened encryption standards, um, which is something that seems to pose uh, inconsistency with our privacy rights. Uh, second, it allows for termination of internet service, which is an essential service. Uh, Canadian companies or people could be cut off from internet service by secret government order without uh, explanation. Um, and there's no sort of system of a regime or recourse for dealing with the fallout of these orders. In terms of privacy, the bill gives the power, the government new powers to collect sort of huge swaths of information from designated operators or telecoms, um, which possibly could lead to them obtaining identifiable personal information, which they can distribute uh, as they see fit. Uh, and there's no guardrails in the bill. The bill lacks any mandatory proportionality, privacy, or equity assessments, um, which might constrain uh, overuse or abuse of the powers it grants the government. Um, and these powers uh, are accompanied by fines or even imprisonment. The bill also allows the government to shroud its orders in secrecy. There's no mandatory public reporting requirements. So normally uh, when there's an order in council or a ministerial order, it's published in the Canada Gazette. Um, and here the default presumption is of secrecy. And so, of course, this is cybersecurity. These are issues of national security. So it's understandable that there's a need for some degree of confidentiality. Um, but there's no way that the public can know how these powers are being exercised, how often and to what effect. Uh, 
the bill really tilts the balance towards secrecy because it allows unknowable hour uh, orders to trump public regulation. Um, so any security rules are in fact unknowable for members of the public. Uh, and here's the part that's sort of directly in our wheelhouse. So the bill authorizes the use of secret evidence in court. So a security order can be challenged by judicial review under C-26, um, but it does not include any mechanism for uh, security cleared advocates to be appointed on applicants' behalf. So if, let's say, there was an order that uh, your company or your own internet access was terminated and you wanted to bring a judicial review to see why, um, there's there, the government could say, all of this evidence is top secret, it's a matter of national security, um, so you would have no ability to answer to the case and there's no mechanism um, for appointing what is uh, used in the immigration context of security cleared advocates, which who have top secret clearance, who at least can test the evidence and say sort of like there is a sufficient case here for terminating internet here. There's, there's no provision for that. Um, and finally, the ministerial powers. So here it's the Ministry of Industry has unlimited powers. There's no protections around powers being being exercised with any proportionality. It's just do anything or refrain from doing anything. So needless to say, I think tomorrow's hearing is going to be a little bit bumpy. I know that some of the members of this committee have flagged that they're broadly sympathetic to some of these concerns. So we'll see how it goes and we'll report back. Uh, Josh, I know a lot of this is outside of our normal wheelhouse, um, but any thoughts about cybersecurity or Bill C-26? Yeah, I took a, a quick read of this bill and, you know, words that you've highlighted here, like uh, ordering telecom providers to do anything or refrain from doing anything that doesn't uh, doesn't even include the words, you know, reasonable grounds. And so I feel like if if you challenge this on a Section 8 ground at some point in the future, you'd have a pretty good case, uh, especially after last week's Emergencies Act decision, where uh, one of the, the keys to the unconstitutionality of the freezing of the accounts order was this idea that there was no objective standards. There wasn't, you know, reasonable grounds to believe or reasonable suspicion required before police could just go ahead and order the freezing of bank accounts. And so this strikes me as running into the same kinds of problems, but then you have these uh, provisions that make so much of this happen in secret. So that makes it extremely difficult for, for someone to challenge um, if they do run into that problem in the future. And the other thing that just jumps out at me without having sort of deeply researched this is the idea that this is going to allow uh, the executive to order internet companies to, you know, cut people off from their, their service. And it, it reminds me of how the government um, has proposed cutting, you know, requiring certain websites to be taken down, like being able to go to ISPs and tell them, you know, you need to take this website down because it's hateful or discriminatory or, or things like that. That was proposed back in, I think it was C-36, but don't quote me on that. And so I think we're getting into dangerous territory here where we're, if we're going to give the the executive the power to, you know, cut off your internet access or, or, or take down specific web pages. So I definitely share some of your your concerns and uh i hope there are at least some amendments because you know obviously we agree security is important but it needs to be balanced out against privacy with some of these 
due process requirements that that we're used to seeing. Anything else you want to say about that, Joanna, or should we take our break and then give our bad legal takes? Yeah, we had two heavy topics. Let's take a little break. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so uh, my bad legal take this week goes to the city of New York, where Mayor Adams and the local head of public health seem to be in a competition with Toronto's mayor and Calgary's mayor for who can come up with the, the dumbest ideas. And what I'm referring to is New York City's new advisory, which was endorsed by Mayor Adams, that social media is a public health hazard and a, quote, environmental toxin. And obviously this just sounds kind of like virtue signaling at first, but Mayor Adams spoke to the media and he is quite clear that social media is is toxic and it's he sees it in the same way as cigarettes or guns. And he's hinting that New York might try to regulate social media companies if they don't do more to prevent this toxic information from TikTok or Twitter leaking its way into children's brains. And Interestingly, the health commissioner who put out this warning, he says some scary things like brains develop throughout childhood and there's no safe age established for children to use smartphones or social media. But then he also points out that the evidence uh, on this stuff is really not clear at all yet. And, you know, it's true that social media might have some harmful effects on youth mental health. And I think most people would agree that it's probably good to be, you know, safe, safer, uh, rather than sorry by limiting kids' access to social media, maybe even keeping it away from them until they're in high school, which is what the the health commissioner himself recommends. But let's be clear here, the 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 evidence on that is is all still up in the air. And so why is this a bad legal take? Uh, a few reasons. First, you know, social media contains vast amounts of protected speech and Organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression and the ACLU have both pointed out that we should be really wary of the government deciding that it's unhealthy for us to access information and to start labeling certain types of information as as toxic. And that's because the next step might be, you know, what the Trudeau liberals in Canada seem to want to do, and that's uh, be able to order removal of what they consider to be misinformation because in their view they see it as sort of toxic uh, or a health hazard and uh that's just that's just not that's just not on i mean the government if they can label things toxic and force it off the internet then that's putting them in control of huge amounts of information that you have a right under uh the charter to to access under the free expression clause you know, on top of that, administrative officials like health commissioners, as we learned in COVID, have huge power over us, especially if they can twist the words that are in, in statutes, words like environmental toxin, um, and make them mean things that they didn't actually mean when they were written by legislators. And that means that these unelected officials can sort of make new laws that we as a democracy never really agreed to. 
And we saw this in Canada with the single-use plastics ban. Ottawa didn't, in fact, have jurisdiction under the Division of Powers to ban single-use plastics. That's a provincial matter. But they decided to go ahead and do it anyway by claiming that plastic is an environmental toxin. And the federal court said, no, that's not what toxin means, and sort of smacked them down. Thank goodness for that. But in the U.S., uh, something similar has happened, which is that in 2009, the EPA suddenly declared CO2 an environmental toxin, and that meant they could start regulating CO2 emissions in all kinds of ways that they couldn't before by treating it as if it were something truly toxic, like lead or mercury or PCBs. And the problem with that is that Congress never gave them that kind of power. They just sort of took it on um, on their own accord because they were opposed to uh, climate change and they wanted to do more um, to limit emissions. So uh, those are the legal reasons that, that this is a bad take. I also just don't like this because even though, like I said, some research shows that social media is bad for youth mental health and that youth mental health is getting worse, I think a lot of that actually has to do with uh, keeping kids out of school during COVID. And Mayor Adams was one of the people who was like most in favor of putting restrictions on kids. And I think he probably did a huge amount of harm to kids by keeping them home for so long. And so I don't want to get him, let him get away with that by uh, blaming social media for all of the teenage mental health woes. So that's my bad legal take. Uh, Joanna, let's hear, let's hear yours. So speaking of youths and uh, and climate change, so seven young persons are appealing, uh, taking their challenge of Ontario's climate change plan to the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, the case, uh, according to their lawyer, is about whether the province should be allowed to exacerbate the existential threat of climate change, which they contend Ontario is doing by not setting aggressive enough emissions targets. Um, now, climate change court challenges are sort of having a vogue at the moment. I believe there are about 15 ones active in Canada right now, and most of them, most of them are led by these um, groups of youths. I guess it's kind of like broadly the Greta Thunberg effect that uh, some of these environmental activists have clued in that it's a very effective PR strategy. Um, and in the U.S., uh, last year, there was actually a victory in Montana um, one of these uh, climate state climate policies was struck down as unconstitutional, but it has to be specified that there the Montana state constitutional constitution actually guarantees enumerates a right to a clean environment. Um, but there's a huge this I think this whole case is really this whole Ontario case, at least is a bad legal take. Uh, it's very questionable uh, proposition to say that a judicial standard exists that could determine whether a given government climate policy is sufficient or sufficiently science-based. Um, and furthermore, courts, um, because of the jurisdiction they have, uh, cannot prescribe the sort of granular details of governments taking specific positive steps towards a specific circumscribed, uh, circumscribed climate policy. Broadly, a constitutional claim cannot impose positive obligations on the government. So positive obligations meaning you must do this as opposed to you must refrain from doing this. 
So the way that the charter works is that it cordons off areas that the government cannot intrude in as it pursues its various policies, which it's free to determine. So, for example, in the Emergencies Act, uh, Justice Mosley found last week that the government couldn't freeze bank accounts without a warrant under Section 8 of the Charter as it pursued its policy that it saw necessary of uh, ending the crisis in Ottawa. It's a totally like structurally different argument to say that as a matter of constitutional requirement, the government has to adopt certain policies or certain strategies uh, against climate change. And in fact, uh, many people may hate to hear this, but the government actually doesn't have a constitutional obligation to pursue any climate change policy, uh, again, because of how the charter works. So for example, in Chauli, uh, the Supreme Court case about um, whether it was constitutional to ban private health insurance, um, the Supreme Court found that the government doesn't have a charter obligation to provide health care. So, you know, certainly there's no obligation to do a climate policy. There's there's not even a, a constitutional obligation to provide health care. But if it was going to provide health care, it couldn't at the same time prevent people from seeking private insurance if they couldn't do it in a timely matter. So here the, the case is much more difficult. The applicants are asking for a more uh, rigorous or stringent climate change plan than the targets that Ontario had established. Um, and that simply can't ground a charter violation, as I am reasonably certain the Ontario Court of Appeal will confirm. Josh, would you like to close us out? Yeah, sure. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us now or I'll label you an environmental toxin. And just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Canadian Constitutional Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter. The CCF is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please do go click that blue donate button on our website if you can. Thank you.